Ready to form Voltron! Activate interlock! Dinotherms connected! Infracells up! Mega thrusters are go! Let's go! Voltron, Defender of the Universe. Welcome, Voltron fans. This is Mark Morell, your host for Let's Voltron, the official Voltron podcast. We're here for another exciting interview with an original member of the, the cast and crew from Voltron, Defender of the Universe. I'm excited, so I have to bring on my co-host, Greg Tyler. Welcome, Greg. Hello, Mark Morell. It's great to be back, and I am really, really looking forward to talking with our special guest. Uh, any chance we have to interview anyone who's worked in past Voltron productions is, is a treat, uh, but to speak with someone who worked on Voltron Defender of the Universe, the one that started it all and got many of us into the Voltron universe, uh, that is a, a, an amazing opportunity, and we're so happy to have this one, uh, you know, this, uh, this guest to chat with tonight. Yes. So I'm really excited because we're talking about the original 1984, the launch of Voltron Defender of the Universe, September 10th, 1984. And we couldn't have done it without this person and all the other people that worked on that crew. So I'm going to bring him on. He did the stereo sound effects and his name is Paul Vitello. Welcome, Paul. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, it's nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. It is wonderful to have you on. We uh, just recently had the opportunity and, and to, to reach out to you, and uh, we're so happy that you uh, have been gracious enough to talk with us and share your share the story your, of your involvement with Voltron and other projects and, and uh, with fans around the universe. So thank you. <laughs> well, great, great. Th again, thank you for inviting me. And it's kind of a, uh, it's fun to take a trip down memory lane. Where would you like me to be begin? A cold, <laughs> a cold day, November 7th, 1956, when I was born. Oh, no. Um, I think you'd like me to start a little later. Actually, where I could start is um, I did the pilot for Voltaren. And uh, that was, I think, in uh, tail end of 83 or early 84. Right. And um, uh, I, I, got, I was introduced to Peter Keefe uh, through Franklin, uh, by Franklin Kofod. I had mm -hmm. worked with Franklin Kofod on a, uh, uh, an animated show that uh, was being adapted from French language on The Little Prince you know, oh, the, wow. the, the classic um, uh, children's story. Mm -hmm. And um, the gentleman who ha had that property was a, a writer by the name of Jameson Brewer, mm -hmm. who his claim to fame was his, his uh, he wrote the film, um, 
The Incredible Mr. Limpet. Nice. Do you remember that film? I have not seen it. That but... was a combination of live action and animation with Seriously. Don Knotts. And, um, oh gosh, I forget the other actors, but where Don Knotts uh, becomes a fish. But hmm. it was a combination of animation, live action with Don Knotts in the late 60s, mid, maybe mid 60s. And Jameson Brewer had acquired the rights to this Little Prince version, you know, then uh, Franklin, um, I met Franklin. We were introduced by a audio mixer who was mixing the, sh um, the shows and I got involved with Franklin that way. And it was uh, Franklin who introduced me to Peter Keefe. Oh. And Peter Keefe kind of came up with the brainchild of, of acquiring the three, um, three animes from Toy, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Go Lion, Die Rugger, and for the life of me, I think you guys know the name of the uh, yeah. third one that was never used. Was, uh, All Vegas. Yeah. There you go. And the concept was to be Voltron of the near universe, the far universe, and the mid universe. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I did the pilot. And at that time, um, stereo uh, was not yet approved uh, by the FCC for broadcast. Mm -hmm. And I think only uh, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show they were producing in stereo because they had the great, um, they had the great uh, uh, jazz band that Doc Severinsen had and specials were done, but FCC had not yet approved it, but they were, what was rumblings that they were going to. And so when, uh, uh, I don't know who came up with the idea. I think it was Peter who said, we, we need to do this in stereo. I was in my uh, 20s. I said, sure, of course, why not? <laughs> and um, uh, set about try, uh, trying to figure out how to do it. So cool. so, so what, had, what had your background been up to that point? Uh, you, you'd interacted with these folks. Um, had you worked extensively in sound prior to your experience uh, well, meeting Franklin? I was, um, I, at that time, I kind of felt like I was a jack of all trades, master of none. I was a film editor who I had cut commercials, I had cut sound, I had cut music, uh, I had cut two documentary uh, films um, at that time. Um, 19, yeah, one was on, uh, was Ken Murray's, uh, Ken Murray's Shooting Stars. Ken Murray was the father of Hollywood home movies. And I put together his last hurrah. Um, and uh, I also cut a documentary on Lee Strasberg in the actor's studio. So I was, um, you know, I was a, a non-union film editor trying to break in, um, cut, like I said, cut commercial sound. And that's why I'm saying, felt like jack of all trades, master of none. Um, I worked on, I was working on a show, uh, Square Pegs as a, um, I got on as an assistant editor and quickly myself and another assistant editor took over the sound editing and music editing for that show. That was a CBS show back in 1983. And at that time, uh, my mentor, who um, I met on the very first project I work on, worked on, and again, it was Toy, uh, a live action show uh, called High Seas Hijack was the um, American name of it. Okay. about um, uh, some African terrorists who capture an oil tanker and float it in, you know, they sail it into uh, Tokyo Harbor and they're gonna blow it up. 
that was the first picture I worked on and did ADR and uh, dubbing voices. My, my friend Riley, who became my kind of my business, uh, my uh, mentor and business father figure. And um, he had a, uh, he was, he built a Foley and ADR stage at the rear of his property. Oh, wow. And he said, uh, Paul, I'm looking for a young man who, like yourself, might come in here and run my stage. I can't pay any, any, anything, but run it as his own business and give me a piece. And I said, Riley, I'm your man. So um, I had, uh, again, I had cut sound effects, dialogue, music. I stepped Foley. I actually did one season of The Incredible Hulk, where I stepped the footsteps of the Hulk. Wow. That's cool. And you never heard them because, um, because uh, whenever Lou Ferrigno ran, he ran in slow motion. Right, right. And they didn't overcrank the camera. Uh -huh. They shot it at normal speed and then they triple printed it. Hmm. Uh, the reason you never heard those footsteps, they triple printed them. And in those days, um, you would start the sound effects with black and white dupes, they called. So the color work picture, uh, you'd send off to a specialty lab. They'd make a, a black and white dupe. They'd make three, four of them. One would go to sound effects, one would go to music, one would go to the dialogue editor, ADR, et cetera. But um, optical effects, special effects would be ordered. So they would take the scene of Lou Ferrigno running in real time. Mm -hmm. And if it was, you know, nine feet, they'd cut it in the middle and slug in another 18 feet. So you'd see him running in real time. Well, I watched the show and knew, oh, they triple print it. Ah. So the, I, this is where I learned to step Foley. And I won't mention name, but the, the boss was one of the owners of the company that had contracted that from Universal for the sound post. Mm -hmm. And he'd say, okay, babe, you, you, you cover the, you know, you step the Hulk's footsteps. So I'd watch him and I'd watch how he'd run and I'd turn it into triplets. You know, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one. So I'd step it and he goes, no, 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 babe, you gotta, you watch the feet, do the feet. I go, but, 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 but they triple print it, figuring somebody would sink it when the optical came in. Well, no one ever did. Hmm. And what happened, I, I, they took me along because I, you know, in addition to stepping Foley, I was the librarian. I had been a sound editor and this man would like it because I would do changes and he could go to lunch and I could make changes if they needed. But I watched the first show when that came in there were my footsteps going boom, 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 boom. And the mixer would just take all the pots and turn them down. Mm. You know, but I had to step them every week and I tried to explain, but I think he was imbibing. I heard sniffing in the background. I think he was imbibing in certain things that, uh, uh, you know, and he would have a cup of scotch with ice in it. So that was kind of pointless to explain to him why I should be doing it this way. But that's what uh, where I got my start as Foley and Foley and my mentor Riley said, Paul, here's a Foley stage. So myself and a partner and some other fellows, we said, let's, let's go into the Foley ADR business. And the first show that we contracted for Foley was the only live action show for, um, that Hanna-Barbera ever did. And, and that, that was with, um, 
James Avery and J.J. Johnson and an orangutan. Oh, yeah. I don't remember the title. Going that... Bananas. Okay. Got it. <laughs> so I was doing that, and that's when uh, I met Franklin and then met Peter, and they said, let's do this in, in stereo. So the pilot, um, I had this Foley stage, and we were just starting to employ the technology of using uh, you know, multi-track tape recorders from the music business in sync with video. And we were using three quarter inch uh, pneumatic uh, video cassettes in those days. And um, so uh, we had the Foley stage, but I only had a moviola. So when um, Franklin did the pilot and um, I was explaining uh, to Mark that what they would do is they record, they did not ADR, they did not loop or dub the, the voices for Voltron. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys know that, but- I, I know they talk about uh, all the time recording to time where they had uh, like a stopwatch kind of thing. Yeah, and um, in the pilot, um, I don't know, I think they just did it to time to a stopwatch and um, Franklin directed that. Uh, but when they cut it, um, rather than just him stitching the, um, the, uh, uh, the dialogue to fit, Japanese anime, the cameras were all pretty much static and mouth flap was very primitive. So it was just as easy to cut picture to manufacture or eliminate lip flaps as it was to cut the dialogue. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And at one point in time, and maybe it was just Franklin's uh, team, but once they got into production, Franklin did the lions and Steve Sterling did the, uh, uh, the 15 vehicles. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know if they did them exactly the same, but there was a time where they, when they did the, the recordings to time, mm -hmm. they actually did it in an ensemble. So really? maybe that's a secret and I'm not supposed to tell, but um, uh I've used that techniques on other shows I'll tell you about later uh, if we have time. Sure. But um, having the ensemble recording, you, you got the benefit of that. But they would, they would do it to time and then manufacture lip, lip flaps. <laughs> That's the first, this is the first time I've ever heard that they did any recording in ensemble. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure they did. Maybe... Um, and maybe that came into the being later, coming came into being later. But um, I've used that technique, and it works amazingly well with Jap with certain types of Japanese anime. Oh, you know, interesting. You your writers have to be more in tune with, you know, making sure the lines fit because you get them close, and then they would go into a video editing bay, and that's when we used to do offline and online. And they would, like I said, they, they'd manufacture lip flaps. So that created another challenge. And um, that challenge was that normally when you have, uh, you know, international distribution, you provide a, what's called an M&E track, music and effects track. Right. And generally you like to have them separated. And fortunately we did. And though we refer to them as stem, a music stem and an effect stem. So the effect stem came 
it was monaural, a quarter inch, you know, uh, with, it, uh, I believe it had pops on it, head pops. But the fact that the picture was so severely cut, the effects track did not just lay in and sink. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Wow. So that's when, you know, uh, when they said, well, how are we going to do that? I said, well, you know, we have to, we have to do new, new sound effects. And we wanted them stereo. Was there any time where you uh, you knew that there was a sound that the, the Japanese had done and you wanted to either capture it the same or use theirs? Was, well, there, was there any at any time where you used any of theirs? Absolutely. Every show we did. And the procedure that we set about was we would take that M&E and sync it where we could. Okay. I mean, the Voltron assembly sequence, we used a lot of their sounds and we cut it to match. And then we augmented with different sounds that had stereo imaging mm. or that we, that we panned. But um, the pilot, for instance, like I said, we did not have multi-track prelay uh, system available to us. Uh, we just had the Foley stage with a, a four track recorder and uh, uh, one channel had time code, so you only had three channels. So really couldn't do anything with that. So I transferred the videotape and had to get that resolved correctly to, to film to a black and white uh, film dupe, as we called it. And I cut the sound effects in film. And for economy's sake, I had a, I created a, a, a library of, of sound effects that were pre-panned, and um, I built I built all the sound all the sounds in uh, in film. And so, then we, yeah, how how do you build those sounds in stereo? Um, how does that work? I, I you know, I'm well, very curious about this. We were making it up as we went along. Okay. Part of the thing is is that. Again, a spaceship by, you know, you would basically just pan the sound from left to right, right mm -hmm. to left. So we did that. Again, we used a lot of the Japanese sounds. Uh, we um, pre-panned some some effects because we, again, we were trying to work on a budget. So we went into a stage that we could four wall or we could mix. So we had certain limitations. So we just kind of, what, what's gonna, what is it gonna take? We created stereo backgrounds. Uh, we used, you know, recording, you know, wind and birds and that type of things. But then we also augmented with synthesized sounds. And I had a roommate at the time who was a musician. And I said, hey, you wanna make a few bucks? Let's go to a, Another, uh, another friend had a, a music recording studio and we built a whole uh, series of backgrounds that had stereo imaging, uh, had stereo uh, imagery, you know, so the reverb was in stereo, there was some movement that we did and we created, uh, you know, the good guy background number one, number two, no, bad guy background, we had, you know, other, other kind of stereo, uh, backgrounds that we did. So that's how we did the pilot. And like I said, we did that in film. It came out in stereo, two channel stereo. Things moved, it was looked good, uh, sounded good. And then um, when we did that, 
I gave them a, uh, a bid. And I can't remember exactly how much it was, but they said, that's too much. And we're going to see. And at that time, there was a, another person who was brought in. I think his name was John Moderati. Does that sound familiar? Uh, not uh, offhand. Not offhand. That might have been. Or no, there was a, a nut, and see, being Italian, Vitello, at least this side, uh, there was somebody who was brought in on the distribution side. And I think John Moderati was his music editor. Okay. And so they did a second pilot that I didn't do. Okay. So before you get into that, um, the DVDs that came out in the mid 2000s actually had the original pilot as an extra, which was the vehicle based pilot. Yeah. And then uh, another extra on another of the discs had two lion-based pilots. And so I, I'm assuming the second one might have been one of those, maybe? I, you know, I can't remember exactly if, if I did the pilot. I, the first pilot, I just remember there was a three, there were three pilots. Okay. The first one I did. Okay. The second one, the music editor, I think that was John Moderati. I think there's something like that. And it didn't hold a candle to mine from what I was told. And I think I did hear it. And he said, well, I guess I'm going to have to hire an assistant or two to meet your production schedule because we had to do five a week. Right. It was like one a day. Yeah. You know, and he, I had planned to have a, you know, we were going to be working seven days, you know, 24 seven. Wow. And I, I had planned on a crew of, you know, almost, um, what, I think nine, 10, 12 different people, you know, to really create an, a creative assembly line to meet mm -hmm. the production schedule. Sure. Right. So the second pilot, uh, like I said, mine was superior. And I said, great, let's get started. They go, no, 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 no. We're doing a third pilot. <laughs> And they, we found somebody in St. Louis who uh, says he can do it all on his synthesizer. And I think that's the fellow who did the vocoder uh, Voltron Defender of the Universe. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So the gentleman who did that, it's my understanding, that's about the only thing of his that made it into the show. <laughs> uh, do you happen to remember his name? No, okay. I don't. Um, so, okay. So after that third one and they, they gave him, I don't know, they gave him two weeks to do it. And he was able to do about five minutes. Ouch. And it again, didn't hold a candle to what we did. Okay. So, and I, I do have to say, I cut all of those sound effects. My partner, uh, did the mixing so it was just, and then a friend, Henry C. Park, who is a, um, he is a blogger, Henry's Western Roundup. He's a writer by trade, oh, wow. written several movies, uh, and he's a, a substitute teacher and a wonderful guy. I haven't talked to him for a while, but he was my, uh, he was an assistant, assistant editor and helped me. It was the three of us that did that pilot. Cool. So, but so we did it, we won the bid, and uh, we then went into production. And uh, it, during that time where those three pilots were done and I was biting my nails, 
Steve Sterling came into the picture. They decided to split the production into two teams. And um, I'll remember the guy, uh, somebody came in, Peter Keith, like I said, was the brainchild behind this and really got this launched. I, I was like mid twenties, I guess, 25, 26. And Peter was uh, pushing 30. And so they brought in somebody who was senior to Peter, only lasted about a year. And, um, and then Peter, you know, he left and, but Peter was the brainchild behind this and was uh, responsible for really selling the top, you know, top uh, 10, 20 markets across the country. And then Brian Lacey came in and sold the rest. And um, I think the other person who came, he was a short-lived tenure that he had. He was only there for the first season. And, uh, um, you know, but um, when we started, I was the only contractor I, um, besides the, the music supervisor that did all 125 episodes. Right. So, like I said, Franklin did the lions, Steve Sterling did the vehicles, and then when we did the remaining, uh, the additional, I think, 21 uh, Go Lions, Franklin did that, and then Franklin stayed on with other productions uh, that, uh, that were done uh, with World Events. When those extra 20-odd episodes were made, um, I noticed that the, the sound effects for the Lion-Voltron formation sequence uh, are different, no, notably different than they were for the episode from the episodes that were adapted really? from the lion, and and so it's an entirely new sound mix when the lions connect, different sound effects, hmm. and I was curious uh, that that seems to be, you know, what was the motivation for that? Do you? I mean, I have curious. no recollection. Huh. It's very interesting. I think whatever the motivation for that was, I think is is buried and we'll never actually know. <laughs> but I'm speculating, we may have remixed it because the first one was pretty, it was a little uh, rough. Cause I think what we did was the assembly sequence, I don't know, you know, that was a stock sequence that they cut. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't know if they recut the picture and then we modified it to fit. I, I don't know. But I do know that when we had that assembly sequence, you know, we used the effect stem from Japan and then we sweetened and added it with our stereo effects and, and other, other things. And we had, you know, and that was done, I, that was done fairly quick. And we started turning out shows and as I remember, it was kind of crude. It was a little sloppy from an editorial point of view. And um, I, maybe it was a situation we wanted to clean it up and make it, you know, make it a little more, uh, a little tighter, um, have it sync better. Um, but I remember it was kind of a, a, a rough, and it was that stock assembly sequence. And sometimes they'd shorten it, sometimes they'd lengthen it. So. It might have been that in the second season we had some downtime and we were able to clean it up. Do you recall it being more, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, more polished and professional? Or do you uh, it, it is. It is a fuller sound mix. Um, there's just it, it's very different. For example, the sequence starts 
uh, you know, both Let's in the- Let's form Voltron. Yeah, um, but the uh, as the lions race up into the sky and then you see the legs fold up, as the lions go up into the sky, um, there's this revving up engine sound as they go up. And then when they converge and you see this flash of light, there's this uh, uh, like a pop sound or some kind of a, of, a, of, a, of a powerful sound. And then as the lion legs fold up, and this is only in those later episodes, as the lion's legs are folding up before they combine, uh, with each movement of the legs, there's, that, there's a recurrence of that powerful popping kind of sound you know from um, what i i do not have a recollection but i can only speculate i do remember that the first season it was a challenge to keep up with the schedule you mm -hmm. know we had to deliver a show a day i don't know how you guys did it it just blows my mind 124 or so episodes well in what 18 months or something like that no Crazy. in less than a year it was it was a year Oh my goodness. Yes. Wow. So the procedure that we did, we took advantage of the new technology at the time. The largest sound film sound company in the world was Glen Glen Sound. Mm -hmm. And they yep. came up with, they started using 24, two inch 24 tracks that they would sync uh, with video. And this came out of the video business where they would do video sweetening. But they would build their tracks on 20, the, their, their, their individual elements on a 24 track, and then they would mix from that rather than on film elements. So after we sold the pilot, we, um, part of what I, you know, what I had priced in was that we needed to have our own prelay system. So I had equipment um, I have a 24 track that was sitting on a dock in Japan. Uh, I had a, um, a console sitting on the a dock in Nashville waiting to, to ship here to, um, to set up a studio, but we had to start delivering shows. So I four-walled a studio in Hollywood uh, uh, that had a prelay system. Uh, I four, uh, we had our Foley stage that we were using. So during day, the daytime, we were stepping Foley uh, to sweeten you know, uh, the shows. Um, at night, we were cutting sound effects on our Foley stage. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Warren Dewey, who just passed away this year. Um, he was a music engineer. He was a sound designer. Um, he was one of the first to do sound design for commercials, TV commercials. Oh, wow. And uh, he was a premium, you know, he was doing great in the advertising business, but somebody put us together and he used a digital sampling keyboard um, called Emulator. It was cool. one of the Emulator, there was the Emulator 1 and the Emulator 2. And he could digitally sample up to 15 seconds. 15 seconds of mono sound, seven seconds of stereo sound. Wow. And he would spread it over a keyboard and he used that as a kind of a sound uh, editing system. And what he would do is he would, he could perform, you know, he would, so for instance, I, I use the, the example, if you had a motorcycle, you know, the, he could sample the sound of the motorcycle starting. Brum, bu, 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 and go into a loop. 
So 15 seconds of sounds, he would spread across the keyboard and then he could perform them in sequence. Oh, wow. So yeah. he had spaceships. So he created a library for, so we had him doing what we called the hard effects, effects that normally when you were cutting on film would be easy to manipulate. So he'd come in at night under the Foley stage and we'd give him three channel, you know, he had a, a, a half inch four track and he would lay down three channels of mono sounds, <laughs> explosions and spaceship buys and laser battles. Wow. We would then take, you know, we'd take the Foley that was recorded and then we would take the hard effects, the explodes, lasers and, and spaceships by, you know, that were three mono channels, three mono channels, and we'd prelay them to 24 track and we would pan them to a stereo pair. Wow. That is just amazing. Well, we had time code to, to sync up the video, the 24 track and the four tracks to the videotape. But this was before um, synthesizers used a different way of doing things called MIDI. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yeah. And it yeah. predated, we did not yet have MIDI time code. So what Warren did was he was able to tap into the controller that we had that was used for ADR that would put out uh, beeps and would put out the uh, information to punch into record. So he, he kind of tapped into those commands to create a trigger to trigger his emulator. <laughs> and what that trigger was, it was an old 12 inch school, wooden school ruler with a solenoid that he had, uh, he had rigged to it and a plastic fork wow. that, that would depress. And he would stick it under his, um, his uh, 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 in the emulator, he had it so he could stick it under the keyboard and it would depress the key. Wow. So he'd use the controller as if it was doing ADR to give the beeps. And there, you know, there was a certain lag time and he had that figured out. So he would use that to trigger you know, the key to, um, which kind of expedited, you know, him laying the, 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 the sound effects in sync. And then he would also perform them, you know, so some of it was triggered, some of it was just performed like a Foley stepper would do. Mm -hmm. And so that's how those layers, uh, how those effects were created. And actually, I don't, I think he, I, I, and I can't remember exactly, but we kind of said the way that we got five shows a week, we, we, we turned it into an assembly line, so to speak, a creative assembly line. And I have to credit my mother. Um, we were, uh, my mother worked for a publishing company that published Tiger Beat and Fave oh, and no. uh, Right On, the Teeny Bopper magazine. Yeah, yeah. Now they also, they also sold mail order projects, products, uh, David Cassidy loved beads, uh, Monkey loved beads, Bobby Sherman loved beads, the Jackson Five loved, everybody had love beads in the, <laughs> in the 70s. And, but my mom had a talent for mechanizing and setting up, you know, workflows. 
So I kind of inherited that from her. And I use that same thing. Let's set up a assembly line. So Warren did those hard effects for the entire show. Somebody else did backgrounds from those stereo backgrounds that I talked about that we had built. Mm -hmm. um, somebody else um, did uh, explosions because I don't think Warren did the explosion because we could do those, you know, but again, we divided different types of sounds kind of for the whole show. Traditionally, film sound editors would get segments and you could have, if you had a half hour, you know, if you had an hour show, that was usually five 10 minute reels. They weren't all okay. 10 minute reels, but you'd have five different editors. They'd all work on them. One supervisor, well, this would keep, keep it consistent but again, it was every every reel was a little different. So I said, let's divide it, you know, horizontally rather than vertically. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so because we segmented that, we foleyed one show a day. Hmm. Uh, we did the hard effects on one show a day. We did the backgrounds on. Uh, we could get one or two shows a day done on the backgrounds. Um, somebody else, like I said, would take these elements and pre-pan them. I would then pick them up and drive out to a, a studio that I contracted, a friend's studio out in Westlake, and we would we would mix them down to, I think, two or three stereo pairs. I think it was three stereo pairs on a 24 track that um, would then also have, I think, music put on it. And we'd have to shuttle those, those 24 tracks around because there was another team. Dale Shacker was the music supervisor who yep. went on to be, uh, he was a composer. He did not get the contract to compose the music on Voltron. He did do the pilot, but someone else, uh, John, there was another John in New York. Peter, who, Peterson. Yeah, who I met years later and worked with on some other shows. He got the contract, but Dale supervised mm -hmm. the editing. So he was the only other person who did all 25, uh, 125 shows from a supervisorial position. So right. he was pre-laying them at one studio. We were building the sound effects at the uh, studio that I four-walled while I was building our own. So, and then, um, our Foley stage was doing certain things and we were driving out to Westlake from Hollywood, which is about 25 miles. And I did that usually at about 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Wow. And we pre-mixed and I would drive back uh, somewhere around three o'clock, uh, four o'clock in the morning, anywhere from three o'clock to five o'clock in the morning. And I would drop off those shows to a company called Primor where, yeah. they, were, where they were mixing. And uh, uh, and my crew basically worked twenty four seven. Wow! You know, sounds like had, you did too. <laughs> I, that first, the first six weeks, I slept an average of six hours every other day. Ooh. So, and that lasted for about eh, a little over six weeks, and then a routine, and I I started to sleep every night. Wow. Not, not a lot, but uh, I was young and I was able to do that. Yeah. Wow. 
So that's kind of the overview. Yeah. Of, oh, of so, my particular niche. So you and you and Peter Keith uh, sort of followed each other after Voltron, right? We uh, it was a lifelong friendship up until the end. Right. So that, we've we've never really had you know the opportunity to talk to a whole lot of people who knew Peter Keith really well. You know, there were people that worked with him like Franklin and Mark and, you know, uh, John Teichman and, and some other people that had worked on the original show and everything. But you really had a close connection, a close personal relationship with him. We did, we did. Franklin, you know, met him first. Uh, John Teichman knew him uh, from way back before, uh, I guess when Peter was producing uh, sporting events for right. uh, Ted. And so they had a relationship prior um, and then John Teichman came out in the early years and, um, you know, and like Franklin, they did work together on the next shows. Um, there was, uh, Saber Rider, Saber Rider um, Vitor, uh, yeah. that's when Tom Burton and Calico came in and then Denver, the last dinosaur, right? right. Denver, the last dinosaur was Peter's original creation. Oh, wow you know, and it was in the middle of production that he had a falling out with Ted and that's when he left. And um, it, when he formed his next company with Brian Lacey, uh, Peter left first and then Brian Lacey followed uh, afterwards. But Brian was doing the, um, the uh, distribution. Uh, he was in charge of selling, you know, and distrib uh, internationally uh world events projects and he came on i think in the i don't know if it was in the second season of voltron or in the mid part of the first season but the gentleman who left originally brian came in uh, after he, he um after that fellow left and peter and brian you know uh really kind of uh steered the ship for ted okay you talked about some other post Voltron projects was so after the main run of episodes, there was a special that was made for Voltron that brought the lion and vehicle characters together. Do you remember if that was produced in line with the rest of the show of the Voltron show, or was it, you know, you know offset I, a little bit as a separate production? I'm just curious. I don't know. And you're asking questions that are very detailed that, I don't even remember that, but I've got to speculate if they brought them together, it had the, to be. You mean the Fleet of Doom, right? Yes. It, 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 it featured, uh, it was It was done along, it was done with original animation, much like the 20 odd It had to have stories. been done, it had to have been done with the, 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 the second batch of 21. Yeah. Because originally the two didn't intersect. So right. um, when they, I was, you know, having some experience with animation before I thought, well, if you're going to do 21 new ones, well, let's record the dialogue, have them, you know, animate to that. And no, no, it didn't work that way. They just let, uh, and again, I see the wisdom in it. The Japanese, I learned years later, they were able, they produced their, their animation so much at a, such a significantly lower budget than we produced original animation here. Mm -hmm. So for them to have 
if we would have written 21 new shows and had them animate to the English dialogue, it would have it would have added to the cost huge. Oh, so, so, I think, so they still recorded to time even yes. with those episodes. Okay. Yeah, they said, do them just the same way. And Peter worked out with the guys that were writing, I think Mark Handler and, you know, mm -hmm. they sent, um, they sent um, outlines um, and treatments. And then the Japanese uh, team, they just did it like they always did. They storyboarded it and everything? Wow. Yeah, they just did it, you know, and we said, this is what we'd like to accomplish. Just do your thing. And uh, then we did it just the same way that we did the first uh, 104. Wow. So, but it had to have been in that second batch, that, okay. that second batch that that show came in. So, so thank you for that. So, so what can you tell us about Peter Keefe? Uh, I, I didn't mean to distract too much from that with my yeah, question he, there. Peter, what was like? I always said Peter was like P.T. Barnum. He was quite a showman. Peter, you also he had a handlebar mustache that he curled up and uh, blonde hair. Mm -hmm. And that mustache was black. There was a time where his hair, he, actually his hair, he went to a hairdresser and his hair, um, you know, as, as he was getting older, he uh, had it dyed. It was almost yellow at one time. And mm -hmm. the first show that he did with his new company was a show called uh, Widget, the World Watcher. And mm -hmm. I have, uh, here, I'll hold this up. This was a little button of <laughs> wi Widget. And you can see he was purple. And the little yeah. tuft that he had on his head um, doesn't show here was it was kind of green and and uh, there was some other colors and I remember Peter always joked about he said he always wanted things bright he said bump up the chroma brump up the chroma um, and we were in an editing session and he turns to me and he says so what color is the on Widget's head what color is that and I said well it's green he goes oh okay now the other thing what color is that and he had mentioned about when he'd say pump up the the chrome. He goes, "I'm colorblind." I thought he was. I thought he was pulling my leg, but he was colorblind. <laughs> Browns and greens uh, looked terrible to him, and he loved primary colors. He loved yellows and reds, and he always wanted them vibrant and popping out. But uh, earth tones, browns, greens, oh, you know, it was so. It was a bit of a challenge, but. Because he was such a, you know, this flamboyant character, a lot of times you thought he was kind of exaggerating and he had a wonderful sense of humor. But um, he was uh, quite dynamic. And he, you know, like I said, had that mustache and um, he really could command a room. It was, it was quite interesting. And with the shows, um, I remember we had the Voltron Victory Cruise. So it was the first season. After the first season, there were two. I was on the first one. I missed the second one. That was a smaller cruise where the crew went to Catalina. And I heard it was quite a party. The other one was for the top, um, I think it was the top 20 markets that they had sold. And it was at the NAPI convention up in San Francisco. And they chartered a boat with a dinner and you know, buses to take their clients. And a lot of our crew was there and we uh, had dinner and celebrated on, you know, in the San Francisco Bay. Nice. Wow. And afterwards, um, 
the buses dropped off the clients at various hotels and Ted was on the bus, Peter and Brian and I was at, and uh, Ted wanted to go on a tour of San Francisco in these buses, which wasn't easy. And uh, we, we talked out of that and we ended up at the, the Mark Hopkins and the um, Fairmont Hotel in the Tonga room drinking uh, drinking uh, rum drinks out of these dog dish size bowls with long straws. And uh, there was a few other things, but I kind of, my memory is really hazy on that. But okay. Peter, we had a wonderful, a wonderful time. But when Peter would interact, he, um, he was a wonderful salesman. He was wonderfully creative. Um, he was very appreciative of everybody who was pulling their talents in, you know, um, and, uh, it was, he was quite a guy, the, yeah. um, uh, and, and what I understood from Brian was that, you know, Peter was very instrumental in selling like the top 20 markets, but then Brian sold the, the, uh, you know, the 80% that was left and international, but Peter also was very involved internationally too. Mm -hmm. Um, again, with the top markets. And Peter and Brian as a team really were quite dynamic and I think uh, responsible for the success of world events tenure in the children's business. It, it was really quite incredible that Voltron became this international phenomenon. Yeah. And yeah. from what I understand too, um, Denver the Dinosaur did, I think was very big in Italy. and. What it was about Voltron, um, I went on, that launched my career for my post-production business. Mm -hmm. And so I just did stereo sound effects. The next year, I contracted with Hanna-Barbera and did the sound editing, the dialogue editing, and music editing, did not do the mixing, and did Foley on uh, GoBots for Hanna-Barbera. Oh, wow. Huh. So, and then uh, the third year, I started working for one of the incarnations of Marvel on a show that was called, I think it was Defenders of the Earth. Yes. And there was 65 episodes there. Yeah. And my I, goodness. And again, I kept doing repeat business for uh, world events, for Hanna-Barbera, Bar Hanna for Marvel. Wow. Um, then and you were still, what? Late twenties, yeah. pushing thirty, maybe. That's I amazing. I, you know, my, I had my sound supervisor. He was with me from the beginning, uh, before we contracted with Voltron. When we set this, uh, when we I did the deal with Riley, and I had a partner who was a technical engineer. I was an editor. My partner and I both stepped Foley, and we needed someone to mix, and so. R.D. Floyd was his name. He passed away three years ago. Uh, at cr Christmas Eve, it was an aortic aneurysm. Um, took him oh. quickly. But he was quite the character. And um, uh, before I left the film business, this was now, you know, 27, 28 years after Voltron. R.D., it's, and he, 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 always, he had always a very unique way of putting things, but he said, Paul, at our age, for every good idea we have, we know a hundred reasons why it won't work. 
<laughs> and that's what I did. I laughed. He goes, but when we were younger, we didn't have a clue. And we went ahead and did it anyway. And look, we had careers. Yeah, and I said, RD, you're absolutely right. And I don't want to be one of those geezers on the porch going, look at the good old days. <laughs> I think the good old days are ahead of us. And I said, we have to fight against that kind of attitude, you know. That so, is such a healthy attitude to have. Yes. So, and RD, um, he was really entrenched in the sound business. And he was, uh, he was same age as Peter. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, the two of them together were quite funny because they had very different ways of, of dealing with things. And they loved each other. But again, sometimes they didn't quite communicate. And I'd have to come in and translate. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but Peter and Brian... Brian Lacey, they really helped navigate that period of time. And that period of time, a little bit of a history lesson, what really enabled the financial success of that, I can't really explain what creatively caught your attention when you were young and, and saw that. I remember having uh, uh, some contemporaries of yours that, uh, at church that would come and ask, when are the lions coming back? <laughs> you know, um, you know, they were, you know, my junior by 10 years, you know, 10 years or better, can't remember, but it's like, yeah, we like the lions. For some reason, the lions really captured, you know, the uh, the viewers, the children, yeah. the children that were viewing. But the phenomena was this phenomena called first run syndication. Right. So you guys are aware of that whole phenomena. And it yeah. kind of started with He-Man and She-Ra with Filmation, Lusheimer. And, and that's what enabled World Events and Peter to come into the marketplace. Um, they were starving for first-run first run content. And the fact that we could come into the market with 125 episodes first run for oh, sale. Yeah at year one, even though we couldn't, you know, we didn't do, you know, we decided to hold off on the 21, but right. had we not, we could have used that third one, 125 episodes in one year. Yeah. That is amazing. And, and the first in stereo. Yep. So can I ask you about the stereo? Yeah. Um, the panning and all that. So <laughs> you guys were making it up as you went along defining yes. your own standard before yes. there was a standard did when the dvds came out have you have you listened to those to see if the sound mixes are consistent with what you guys had created back then or has that been lost to time with these new well, formats kind of taking over i you know what i can I, i'll answer another question okay uh, i when my son my son's now 33 when he was young our friday night ritual was um We'd go to, my family started an Italian restaurant in Studio City, which is known for the, the, the restaurant where Robert Blake uh, shot his wife around the corner. Got it. And uh, so- Beretta. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, actually, I had some, some young woman, she was young, called from Philadelphia. She goes, is this Vitello's? I go, this is Vitello's production. She goes, well, what about, what's a Studio City restaurant? I said, a Studio City restaurant's a restaurant that was located in Studio City, but she heard it on the news. 
Tello's restaurant, Studio City restaurant, like a Memphis barbecue restaurant. But, but um, our tradition was to go to Vitello's to have pizza. Uh, it was out of the family at that time. And then we'd go to a laser disc store and we would buy lasers. So I bought the first Volt Voltron laser disc. Mm -hmm. And this was years afterwards. And I listened to it and I had to laugh because I kind of had aural whiplash. <laughs> the first, the first, I don't know, dozen shows or so, we we panned everything. We panned footsteps, we panned laser battles. You know, if spaceships went by, we panned them, you know, hard, hard right to left, hard left to right. And we didn't realize that when you're dealing with a small screen, that kind of you know, audio imagery, it just didn't work. So very quickly we, we learned rather than hard left and right, it was just kind of like maybe a little bit, mm -hmm. a little bit to give that sense of movement. And really if something entered the screen and exited the screen, that's the only way you could really, when pans were, were, were really effective. Mm -hmm. The, the rest of it was just kind of the spatial feel. Okay. You know, that you get with two channel stereo. So to answer your question, I had to laugh at the first three, four episodes that they put to LaserDisc. Cause like I said, you know, you kind of would, you know, if, if, if it was visual, you'd, you would have been motion sickness. So it was, <laughs> it was kind of funny. But you're right, we were making it up and learning as we went. So That's I have to ask you then, what is your favorite way of watching movies and you know, uh, having the sound in, in a movie? Do you do a 5.1 surround sound, 7.1 surround sound? Do you do 3.1? Do you, what's your favorite way to, to listen to a movie? Well, in terms of, um, when I produce soundtracks, um, I only I only dealt with five up to five point one, and I do have a tuner and I've got speakers that I can go you know five point one. I don't have a I don't have a uh, my previous previous house. I did have it set up with a um, you know a woofer a bass woofer so I could decode that from the Dolby Pro Logic. So that was kind of the way that I did view things at home. And really my favorite way would be go to my buddy who um, was an ADR mixer for Todd AO, Glenn Glenn and Skywalker Sound. Mm. Um, he re-recording mixer. And he was actually our third partner when we started the Foley stage, but that didn't work out. But we're dear friends today. I see him, he, uh, I see him at church. He's playing the drums. He retired from mixing. But, uh, and he's my son's godfather. But my wow. favorite way of seeing a movie, you know, not in the theater is going over to his house because he's always got the best uh, <laughs> setup, you know, and he was the first one to have the laser discs and have the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, four, the four channel stereo mm -hmm. was before the 5.1. And so that's my favorite way of watching it over at Greg's house, another okay. Greg, so, but yeah. But what other questions? I talked a lot. And like I said, put a nickel in my slot and, uh, you know, I'll go. <laughs> He's like Zoltar. 
So what what uh, I am curious about, uh, you, you had been in the industry for, what did you say, 27 years? Is that what you'd said? Uh, no, that was the run of my company. I started, oh, okay. I started in 1976. Okay. And uh, we uh, started the Foley stage in 83, Voltron in 84. Um, and from 84 to 2010 was the run, 83, 84 was the run of my company. And okay. then I closed, uh, Peter died in May of 2010. And um, uh, at that time I had transitioned. I, I used to joke that I was forced into production because I was the only one who would pay my post rates. So <laughs> at that time, the last, seven years or so. Uh, I did produce a series for Peter. Um, we did a pilot and then we went into production on a series that was never completed based on the uh, 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 characters that followed the Chinese Zodiac. And it was oh, Z-Force. Okay. And it was kind of old school, uh, much in you know that old school animation. Um, and uh, we got about halfway through the production um but and the the rest of the financing didn't didn't come through and there's stories to tell on that that i won't go into um but uh i also was i did the last oh i think four or five uh, peanut specials oh wow and you know for bill melendez and uh through that i did get into uh doing um work for charles schultz's oldest daughter and those were live action equine shows she was the world's leading authority or is the world's leading authority on mules and donkeys wow. and uh, because she's you know uh, one of the heirs to the peanuts fortune she can afford to be an expert on mules and donkeys but um we produced equine shows for her for rfd tv and then went into production on some uh, uh on four animated specials because she had done a special on on a book that uh, we did and um uh, that project ended uh, contentiously and uh, Peter passed away. Uh, I was doing language localization for Hilton hotels for their training programs. And so a certain, I, I kind of transitioned and after 20 years of being a main supplier for uh, animation, I worked for CBS, uh, two incarnations of Marvel, um, New World, um, you know, and we did picture editing, Disney, worked for Disney, did the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh, but we did the picture editing, the sound editing. Sunbow was a company that did, did Transformers, My Little Pony. I did a lot of work for them. I directed dialogue. So I kind of expanded. If it didn't involve drawing, I could do it, you know, <laughs> and uh, even uh, Peter and I on Peter's uh, company after world events was a company called, um, what was it called? Zodiac Entertainment. Right. And um, they produced three series, uh, Widget the World Watcher, uh, The Adventures of Mr. Bogus. Here's Mr. Bogus. And this was a Belgian claymation character that Peter took in uh, developed this character and they, we did that. Uh, we used the claymation as wraparounds to three uh, traditionally animated, um, you know, uh, 2D cell animation 
Uh, and that was a fun show. And then they did a third show in cooperation with the Korean government. I don't know if you can see, it was Twinkle the Dream Being. And it was a little character that was the mascot for the 1993 uh, expo that they held in Korea. And that mm -hmm. was funded jointly by Peter and Brian's company, uh, the Korean government. And I think it was the Menghua Broadcast Company of Korea. There was, you know, uh, those were the three shows that Peter and Brian produced. And then their financial partner, uh, Central Independent Television out of Great Britain, they got acquired by, I think it was Carlton Communications. And um, they did not support the American, you know, rogue unit that was producing these shows and they closed it down. Hmm. And the arc, again, the arc of first run syndication during that time shifted. And yeah. um, there's a whole history that could be, that could be a second podcast. We could discuss the ramifications <laughs> of that. I, that is a topic that fascinates me quite a bit. Uh, yeah. That just amazing. Uh, it, it really sounds like uh, what what a ride. I mean, <laughs> uh, you're you're wow. Is is there anything you're doing today that you'd like to talk about or promote? Well, I will. Pro oh, I now do. I now what I what I do. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. And Mark also kind of works in a similar business, but on a different end. Yeah. I, I'm in financial services. After I uh, closed my production company, I spent five years trying to figure out what I was going to do when I grew up. And um, one thing led to another. I ended up uh, getting recruited by an insurance company. And what, you know, like I said, I was, I was doing business consulting for uh, some former employees. Because I was an entrepreneur, there was this love. And as I was in my old business, I got more creative satisfaction about, and it started with Voltron, putting together a team. How are we going to, for a budget, create stereo sound effects, high quality? How are we going to create that that um, that uh, a better, faster, cheaper? You know, cheap is a bad word, but more cost-effective solution right. to a problem. So as the technology grew, the business sh shifted and changed. Uh, I, uh, you know, I adapted to it and really I got more satisfaction out of the, the business aspect, Cre building a creative team. How could I, um, uh, you know, creative ways of doing things. Um, we created uh, uh, an automated way of creating um, uh, animatics which are you familiar with animatics? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I mean, now things have changed, but there was a time where it used to take one operator, you know, a week, you know, working 10, 12 hours a day to create an animatic on one act of a storyboard. Wow. We automated that flow and we were able to do two full episodes uh, within, within a week. Instead wow. of one act, yeah, we were able to output six times that volume by the assembly line, creative assembly line method that I'll give my mom credit for, even though hers was technical, I borrowed that. So solving problems and, you know, what, how do you take these assets and move it around? So that's what I say. Now, as I work with small businesses that I have a passion for, fellow baby boomers, 
you know, I say, look at in the old days, we had film and video, they now we call them asset, picture assets, sound assets, graphic assets, you know, and you rearrange them to tell that story and edit them. I do the same thing, but with money. And it has, um, you know, not to diminish the entertainment value of television programs, but I feel right now I'm getting more satisfaction and meaning from in helping people uh, build their financial story. And, and that, so that's what I'm doing. And I approach it much the same way, even though people say, oh my gosh, it's so different what you're doing. But what I find with creativity, every job that you have, even if it's a technical job, even if it's a routine or tedious job, as I, you know, I think, look at a wax uh, a philosophic and spiritual, in Genesis, it says, God created us in his image and likeness. At God's core is creativity. So if we are created in God's image and likeness, and that is a creative being, I think we're all creative. How that creativity expresses itself, it could be in you know, a scientific arena, it could be in a technical arena, um, mm -hmm. you know, but how we approach whatever it is that we do creatively, I think is what elevates us and, um, and satisfies us. So yeah, I do financial services and planning for uh, small businesses. I'm working with uh, a, a little bit younger than me, two animators that wanna start their own uh, animation service, work for hire service. Oh, how awesome. And I said, uh, you know, um, I always start kind of from a financial point of view. Yes, you're gonna do it creatively, but let's make sure you don't sell the farm. So I'm working with them kind of first and foremost on since they're a little bit younger than me, 58 and 62, I say, you're close. How much money can you afford to put into this venture? So I still am getting to work with people in my original industry and bring that expertise. I also am a volunteer with SCORE which is the nonprofit resource partner for the United States Small Business Administration. Oh, wow. So, and one of the workshops that I've been dying to do, I've done financial workshops and I've hosted other workshops with other presenters. Uh, and then I also do one-on-one -on -one mentoring. SCORE, their two it's all volunteers. And the two things they do is one-on-one um, -on -one business mentoring for free. And uh, they also have educational um, uh, material, but predominantly workshops. And some of those are free. Some of those are for a nominal fee that help offset the administrative costs. But I'm doing my new one that I've, I've done one-on-one, -on -one, the art and science of pricing, bidding, and billing. And that, that is so beneficial, not just to businesses, but to... Uh individual uh, artists and things like that who are exactly. selling on Etsy exactly. and other outlets. I'll set, I'll set, and again, that's through SCORE. I'll send you the link for that. Please do. And um, I, it's focusing on creative services. Mm -hmm. You know, again, how do, how, do you, how do you come up with your pricing to make mm -hmm. sure you're, you're profitable and right. can deliver the work? Um, 
So I, I kind of subtitled it, you know, uh, establishing your value and managing client expectations and winning the bid. So those are the things that I do that I draw upon my animation. And I've got to say it started with Voltron because I started my production company that ran for over 27 years with the opportunity from my mentor, Riley. And when Peter Keefe came in and said, uh, you know, we want to do stereo sound effects and Paul, you win the bid. And I said, holy mackerel, now I've got to deliver. I had no investors. I had no bankroll. I bankrolled it totally out of cash flow. Wow. And um, I'll tell you one last story on the financial side. Hulas Kanodia, I think that was his name. He was the controller. He wow. was of Indian, East Indian descent. And um, I think um, the Copplers owned a, a, an airlines at that time when we started. It was Air Ozark. Oh. And they ended up selling it, I think, to TWA. Of course, TWA no longer exists. <laughs> but uh, Hulos, Hulos Kenodia, he ended up going with the airlines. But wow. What happened was I was I was green. I submitted my proposal, you know, and I said, well, I need a 10 to 20% deposit to, you know, to do this, thinking that, oh, well, we'll we'll settle on 15%. Well, they come to town with 10% deposit. And I'm going, holy mackerel, I've got equipment being waiting to be shipped based on, and that wasn't quite enough to really do this, I'm going, how, you know, because if I needed 15%, I should have said 15% was mm -hmm. required. But I thought, oh, we'll negotiate. So they came to town and I, and they said, well, if you need more, we'll have to take the check back and it'll be another two weeks. Mm. And wow. I was sweating bullets because how am I going to meet that production schedule? Well, by the grace of God, one thing that I knew that they didn't know the delivery schedule had been pushed two weeks. Uh -huh. Their payment schedule remained the same. Uh -huh. So when I realized it, I said, wait a minute, if I accept the 10%, I'll be paid 90% for 10 shows two weeks of it in advance. And that's going to be as good as the 15, I can do it. So that mistake, I was able to, you know, dodge that bullet and then uh, getting terms for the equipments that I had bought, juggling it carefully, but I had to meet payroll. You know, I had four uh, seasoned editors who they were skilled at editing, but uh, only two of them were skilled on the multi-track equipment. I had to uh -huh. train the other two, but these at the time, I think, uh, I think they were, I paid them a thousand bucks a week. And, um, you know, and that was, that was kind of going right at the time. Wow. So we had those four people. I had two assistants, a librarian. Um, we had uh, Warren and RD and two Foley steppers. How am I going to make payroll? So managing cash flow was so, so critical. And 
it wasn't until seven years later that I actually learned the concept of a break-even analysis. <laughs> I didn't, so much of what I did, I did with the, the knowledge that I had and, you know, calculator and sheets, just trying to figure it out. And uh, my business partner, who was the engineer, he said, let me show you how to use a spreadsheet. And it was Lotus one, two, three. Wow. I remember. <laughs> Actually, it was Jazz, which was the Macintosh version of Lotus one, two, three. Wow. And my first spreadsheet to calculate what it would take if we did five shows a week and stay on top of it to make sure I could pay my, my, my crew and deliver the shows. Uh, it took me two days to build it because I was learning how to build an, a spreadsheet. And then I did it again in a day. And then I did it again in four hours. And I've been addicted to Excel spreadsheets ever since. <laughs> they but do get addictive. <laughs> again, that's a very technical and financial situation, but it required creativity and thinking outside the box. Yeah, I think every industry requires creativity. And we just, if you just get, if you get below the superficial and you think about what it really takes to get anything done, you've got to be creative. Absolutely. So I, I don't think that, I don't think your transition is a, is a massive mind shift at all. I, I totally agree with you. Well, I, great minds thinking alike, Greg and Mark, I think so. <laughs> but, so, you know, um, it's fun to, uh, and again, to pass this information on to people that are, you know, younger and coming by, I, I had so many people that were so generous to me um, up until the time, you know, well, and to this day, but um, that which I felt was jack of all trades, master of none, I look back in hindsight and it was, that is what it prepared me for to be able to contract all of the aspects of post-production, to be able to recognize, even if I could not do it at a certain level, I could recognize those people who could. So um, I was very fortunate and blessed to have a lot of good mentors who were so very generous. And I found too, nine out of 10, if you asked and said, can you help me? People were, were more generous with the information. Uh, you know, sometimes I got more information than I ever bargained for. And not wanting to be rude, I, I took it all in, you know, so. And it's, it's wonderful that you're able to return that favor to people yeah. today. So, so and I, like I said, I think it's, it's that whole thing of uh, being grateful and passing it on and paying it forward. And uh, yeah, I'm, it's, that's, that's the way that I feel. We just wanted to find out because we we talked to some of the other people that were from the original series, uh, the merchandise and everything. Did you have any merchandise from the original series, and do you still have it? Well, I did. I showed you earlier, and I I do have. I'll show you here. Uh, let's see if you can see it. The um, can you see that? Yes. yes. This. Yes. Sadly, this Voltron does not have his head, but this was the first Voltron that we, my partner and I bought in Little Tokyo. It was after we kind of got things running somewhat smoothly, we went and had a nice sushi lunch. We found a toy store 
that imported these. I think I paid $100 for it. And that was in 1984, mind you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And we found it. We were the only ones who had the Voltron. When I think it was in our, I don't know, there was a period of time where we didn't know if we could deliver five shows. We knew we had four shows. Um, and I think Gary and I were in New York at a, um, a uh, audio engineering convention. Um, and the crew was working. Uh, and I think Franklin came over and kidnapped and held Voltron hostage. Oh. We got a ransom note that if we ever wanted to see him again, a fifth show better be delivered. Wow. <laughs> I remember having my production manager, Judy, I was talking to her from uh, Times Square and she's going, I don't know where, you know, our one editor, Joe, I don't know where he is. I think he's in the bathroom. I think he might be taking something to keep him awake. I don't, I told him just stay at the console, keep working. Um, <laughs> oh, you wow. know, so I'm telling stories out of school here, but we were young. <laughs> uh, we all worked very hard. My crew was great. And, yeah. um, you know, uh, like I said, we were all kind of making it up, but it was teamwork. It was an assembly line. And, um, there were some wonderful friendships that were forged there. As I mentioned, R.D. who passed and Warren Dewey who passed this past year. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I had relationship, you know, working relationships and friendships with them uh, for the rest of their lives. And wow. I will always, always remember them. And remember that time, you know. Uh, I mentioned I, I got to see Ted when they came out, I think five years ago. And I had run into him where I was at a baseball scouts convention with a dear friend who was legendary baseball scout that they named the annual award, the Lifetime Achievement Award. And it was a big uh, uh, baseball, uh, you know, uh, their annual awards dinner. And as I was walking out with my 90 some year old friend, I see a bald head that I recognized and it was Ted. And I <laughs> followed him down and he disappeared and I got him as he was coming out of the bathroom and we reconnected. And ah. so the following year or two after that, he invited me to, I met him at the uh, hotel. We had drinks with Franklin and uh, uh, his wife was there. And but, that, was, um, that was for the launch of Voltron Legendary Defender. That's right. I didn't go to the, the that launch, but it was a good Friday. And yeah. I went home to my family and was uh, observing that holiday and uh, but I did get a chance to have a drink with Ted and, and see him again there. And, uh, but it was a wonderful opportunity. And it's, um, like I said, my relationship with Peter Keefe lasted the rest of his lifetime. Yeah. And um, uh, I did so much other work with him. And uh, Voltron, you know, was responsible for, uh, you know, for brought me to where I am today, so. Well, I'll have to figure out how to work it into the financial services of forming, you know, uh, forming Voltron. like Voltron. Yeah. Yeah. Something they, like that. Well, Voltron uh, influenced your life in a, in a whole lot of ways. And we are so glad that Voltron brought you here to talk with us tonight. Um, this has been a wonderful conversation and uh, I wish it could go on. I, I it's just a blast 
chatting well, with you, thank Paul. You. Thank you. Um, you know, again, uh, happy to do it again in the future. I don't know what else I could cover, but uh, you, both of you gentlemen have been a, a delight to speak with. Uh, I, I admire your, oh, my Voltron watch. Oh, nice. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Nice. So, uh, but that, that's a bit of the swag that I still have. And part of the reason too, why he's in bad shape, uh, my nephew who's now 40, I think, 40, 40, yeah, I think he's 40. And another friend's uh, child were over. And this was back shortly after I started Voltron. But mm -hmm. I remember how three or two and a half, three year, I think they were three, would run around. You gave them a toy and they'd go, mine, no mine, no mine, no mine. <laughs> so I think that's what accounts for the condition that my original Voltron is in or my, <laughs> my, my other ones. So yeah. gentlemen, thank you. We just want to say thank you very much for you and your team's work back in 1984 on Voltron, Defender of the Universe, and everything that you did, you know, for making this show what it was, because it's part of that that really went into what people really remember best about that show. Yeah. And why it is still something that people look back on fondly today. Oh, yeah. Well, every once in a while I do, I remember driving down the freeway with uh, Peter after a lunch we had um, with a Korean broadcaster and he pulled up next to me and he had a big car at the time and he rolled down the window, honked his horn and he, uh, um, I rolled down my window and he yelled at me, he goes, let's form Voltron and in he came towards me. Um, it was a close call, but uh, <laughs> let's go guys, let's form Voltron. Okay. And we'll see you all next time on Let's Voltron. Let's Voltron.